Well, if you have your Bibles and would like to open to that passage, um, we are going to get to that eventually. Um, we're, we are uh, going to be moving our way there toward the end of the sermon, but you can open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And I do apologize about my voice, as you may have read in the midweek email. I, I caught a little sickness, and my kids keep telling me it, it's, the, the fault is Christmas Eve. Last year, we had a Christmas Eve service. I got sick the next day. A couple years ago, Carl preached for me. Actually, it was last year that Carl preached, right? Um, Thankfully, I didn't have to have anyone else preach, but I'm not going to be at the back today just in case whatever I have is still going around. So I'm going to be sucking on a lozenge trying to keep my voice. But as we begin, I want to just take us back a few centuries You see, the Christian life in the late 15th and 16th centuries was a complicated one. There was one church, at least in Europe, there was one church, and now there were many cathedrals and multiple parishes, but there was one church, and it was centered in Rome. And um, as I understand it, Scripture, the Bible, was practically chained to the pulpit. People didn't have Bibles in their homes. And what's more, the Bible that was chained to the pulpit was written in a language that few people understood. It was written in Latin. So whether you spoke German or French or Spanish or Italian or English, Latin was the only means by which you could hear the Word of God. And priests and monks were the only ones authorized to read and teach it. It wasn't available for commoners. Beyond that, there was a complicated system of obtaining salvation. Repentance was part of the picture, praying to saints and paying indulgences and performing acts of contrition all worked together to keep faithful Christians in a sort of bondage of wondering. And while the papacy claimed to be infallible, corruption marked by greed and infidelity was all too common. One pope practically bragged about the fact that he had had a child out of wedlock with a physician's daughter. Another pope was anxiously or or eagerly trying to expand the Vatican. And so a fundraising campaign was launched, and this famous phrase came out of it, a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. It was a huge fundraising campaign with a spiritual overtone. Matthew Barrett, a a man who wrote the book, uh, God's Word Alone, the Authority of Scripture, said that with the appropriate amount of money, repentance was now for sale and any sin could be covered. This was the spiritual environment that prompted several men of God to lobby for reforms in the church. They wanted to bring the church back to its roots. They wanted to pull out the corruption. And so on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther famously posted his 95 theses, his 95 arguments that he wanted to engage in debate in order to reform the church. He nailed those to the, to the door of the church in Wittenberg. And the conversations and the debate that he had hoped for spun into what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. 
And while there was a lot that happened in those early decades of the Reformation, there are five significant pillars that came out of that. And we know, we call those now the five solas. Namely, these consist of sola scriptura, sola scriptura, or God's word alone is the authority for the church. Solus Christus, salvation is through Christ alone. Sola fide, salvation through Christ is by faith alone. Sola gratia, salvation is an act of grace alone, not of works. Soli Deo, Deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to take each one of these solas and we're going to consider what, what prompted this sola to become a marker for the church, but we're also going to consider why it's still important for us today. Um, and as you know, normally when I preach, I, go, I try to go sequentially through a book. We just did the book of John. We've done the book of Hebrews. We did all of the Bible, actually in those one-off one sermons, but for the next few weeks, it'll be a little bit different. We're going to still look at Scripture, but it'll all be a bit more topically based. So let's begin where the Reformation began, began and that is with this idea of sola scriptura. And in order for us to understand this, I think it's important that we go back, and not just back to the 1500s, but back to the very beginning back to the first century. You see, when Jesus was born, the books that we know of in the Old Testament were the only scriptures that they had. And it was pretty much a sealed thing. There was, it was pretty well canonized that the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. And it consisted of three major parts. One is called the Torah or the law, and that was Genesis through Deuteronomy. There's a second part called the Nevi'im, which was the prophets. And it included Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all 12 of the minor prophets. And then there was a third section of the scriptures known, known as the Ketuvim. And these are the writings. This is where we get Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, and the books of poetry. That was Jesus' Bible. That was Jesus' scripture. That was what everybody read. That was what they studied. That was what they had in Sabbath school, if you will. And then as Jesus' ministry gained an impact and the church began to grow, people began to circulate letters about Jesus and circulate letters to various churches. And this started around 50 AD, about almost 20 years after Jesus ascended. And roughly by the year 150, the books that we know of as our New Testament from Matthew through Revelation were pretty well solidified. Those were the books that were now being passed around as Scripture. And there were other people writing letters, and they began to introduce divergent doctrines and divergent theories. And so several Christians, several churches gathered together, and they formed a council in order to determine what really is the Word of God. And so they settled, after that thing, they settled on the 66 books that we know now of as our Bibles. They canonized the full body of Scripture and so as we think about this whole thing, it really comes down to then the question of or a matter of authority. You see, here's where the first big argument over Scripture began. It's over authority. Does Scripture have authority over the church or does the church have authority over Scripture? So let's begin with the debate within the church. And I, 
For years, I didn't fully understand why there was a big divide between Catholics and Protestants. And then about 10 years ago, I was listening to WMAL. It's a secular news talk radio station. And I was on my way to work at the time. And I listened to one of the DJs on there who's a devout Catholic. And he's very public about his faith. And and he, um, he made a comment that made a light bulb go off in my brain. And and his words were something to the effect of, well, we, the church, determine that this is Scripture, so therefore we have authority over Scripture. We have authority to apply it differently. And I was like, oh, it's all a matter of where does the Bible stand in relation to the authority structure of the church? And so for Martin Luther and the other reformers, Their view was that the authority rested in the Word of God, not in the church. Scripture trumped tradition, the church, and its officers. So let's define this principle, this idea of sola scriptura, which according to Barrett in his book, God's Word Alone, he says sola scriptura means that only Scripture, because it is God's inspired Word, is our inerrant sufficient, and final authority for the church. And so during the time of the Reformation, the doctrine of sola scriptura became a big dividing line between Catholic and Protestant churches. And it, this debate forced the Catholic church to revisit that over and over again. And yet to this day, they still would say that tradition, the Pope, the church is over Scripture. They have elevated Scripture. It's not as subservient, but but it is still in that order. Tradition trumps the church. In fact, there was one pope, one guy who was pope uh, before he was a pope, made the comment that even if there are some unbiblical traditions, they are still allowed because we deemed it so. So things like transubstantiation, when we do the Lord's Supper, they would say that it is the literal body and blood of Jesus that we're eating. That's not a biblical concept. Or veneration of the saints, praying to Mary. Those are things that are common practices, and yet they're not biblical practices. And I, I, bring that, I don't bring that up because I, I want to cause division. I really don't want to cause division. I want us to understand what went into things that led to the Reformation, what led into things to have us to um, understand where we are, what our view is, what my view is of the Word of God. So I don't want to cause anyone hurt or harm. So why is this a big deal? Well, if the practice of the church and the teaching or reading and understanding of Scripture is left to a few, and it's only communicated in a foreign language. So keep in mind, back in the 1500s, it was only read in Latin. And unless you knew Latin, you, would, you, couldn't, you couldn't get it. And so you had to trust that whatever was coming out of the teacher's mouth was what was true. So those teachers could almost say anything and declare it to be true and right and valid. And unfortunately, sometimes they did. And I think many of the teachers and leaders at that time did value the church and they revered Scripture. 
And I think they were generally truthful in their instructions. But as I said, some of those doctrines still made their way into the church, which are not found in Scripture, not endorsed or encouraged in Scripture. So as a result of this element of, of the debate, several people began to translate the Bible into the languages of the people. And what's fascinating, so out of that time, shortly after his 95 theses, Martin Luther began translating the Bible from Latin into German. And the printing press had just come about, and so movable type was there. And so all of Luther's letters, all of his little, you know, documents and pamphlets that he was writing, they were able to be disseminated very quickly. Well, the Bible was able to be disseminated very quickly as well. He was working on it in, in German. Actually, several years earlier, William Tin, uh, uh, well, Wycliffe and Tyndale were, write, were working on other translations from the Greek into English. In fact, one of them was martyred because he was trying to get the Bible into the language of the people. Imagine that, the church martyring someone, killing someone because they want the word of God in people's hands. Exactly. It was a matter of control, I think. But now that the Bible was made available in the language of the people, people could read and study and apply Scripture, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't only for the religious elites. It wasn't for the spiritual elites. It was for common folks. But this conflict with authority, the authority of Scripture didn't only exist among the churches. You see, right on the heels of the Reformation came the debate with Enlightenment. This, during this era, also known as the Age of Reason, human reason and science are, became the big antagonist to Scripture. And if something couldn't be reasoned out, setting miracles aside, then it must not be true. So people would come to Scripture and they, they would say, well, that, that can't have happened. The miracles that we see, oh, well, that can't have happened. It, it's not logical. And so they would say that that didn't exist. And pretty soon they began cutting apart all Scripture into what just became nothing. Again, Barrett writes, what distinguished the Enlightenment was how it viewed reason. The enlightenment individual believed he could have access to pure human reason, which would allow him to tear down traditional ecclesiastical myths that only served to oppress societies of ages past. The enlightenment man confidently declared to the world that he had come of age intellectually and was now, it was now time to liberate himself from the assumptions that he had previously inherited from his mother Christendom. By means of pure reason, he was now capable of discovering truth for himself, and in doing so, would pioneer a new path to enlightenment. Reason was the golden ticket to a life of total objectivity, free from bias. And there are a bunch of different stages within this whole environment, enlightenment era and the age of reason. We don't have time to get into all that. But I want, want you to understand, so essentially in the first argument, we had tradition and the church over Scripture. And now we have reason sitting in judgment over Scripture, declaring what is and what is not true and right. And this gave way to all sorts of beliefs. So you have deism coming out of that, just this general belief that, well, there is a God, but he sort of spun things into motion, and now he doesn't really care about anything. It also led, I think, through the age of reason, we saw a rise in, in agnosticism, people thinking, well, there may be a God and we can't know anything about him. But it also led to a rise in atheism, 
people just think, well, there is no God. Eventually, this outside attack from enlightenment gave way to other internal attacks within the church and where we see the debate with Protestant liberalism and biblical criticism. Again, Barrett writes, Protestant liberalism was an intentional renovation of Christian orthodoxy to accommodate enlightenment thought. This did not mean that liberalism accepted the rationale of of enlightenment uncritically, but it did believe in the necessity of recasting Christianity to meet the concerns raised by the Enlightenment. And we see this happening today. For instance, in in all of our our society's push for the LGBTQ agenda, they turn to the churches and say, well, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to accept that? Are you going to adjust? The Scripture is old and outdated, so Scripture says it's one thing, but are you going to accept what Scripture says or are you going to accept what society says? And so we see that battle going on inside our world today, and, and it's happened in so many other ways. People have gone back and, and looked critically at autographs and said, well, this can't be, they're applying all sorts of theories. In fact, one of the other things that happens is now that people will look at Scripture and they'll apply today's standards of writing, today's standards of, of what it means to be accurate and true and, and correct, to ancient literary records, which, and we're, we're seeing that debate in, in other areas, but they're applying a standard that the Bible wasn't written to. And yet, even today, we continue to see this in our current debate with postmodernism, where truth is subject to relevance. We can almost say that in our society today, there is an absolute absence of absolute truth. Today, everything is questioned. Now, you know, sometimes it's not necessarily a bad thing, and I'm not saying we shouldn't question things. I'm not saying we shouldn't think and ask hard questions about Scripture. But is there a standard that we're working with? Is there a standard that we're, we're comparing things to? You know, with nearly everything in life, there is a standard. For instance, if you're making food, right? If you're making a recipe, you want to follow the recipe according to what the standard is. If you're going to use a tablespoon instead of a teaspoon, you're going to get a bit of a different result. And you better make sure that that tablespoon is the right standard. Did you know that we have an entire agency dedicated to maintaining standards? It's not far from here. National Institute of Standards and Technology. They exist mainly to make sure that when we measure something an inch, that an inch is still an inch. An inch is exactly that long, rather than using the old measurement of a hand breadth or a cubit, right? Or whatever the other, you know, human or a foot. Your foot and my foot are different sizes. And so we can't measure everything by but a 12-inch foot. The National Institute of Standards and Technology has determined a 12-inch foot is 12 inches and exactly, you know. So we have, we have standards in some things, but when it comes to other things, our society's like, no, 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 no. We don't want standards anywhere. When it comes to standards in morality, conduct, and ethics, we want none. So we're removing, our society's removing all those boundaries. And one of the things that the reformers challenged was that the Bible alone is the final authority 
for matters of life and matters in the church. Authority does not rest in people, in reason, in science or experience. I believe it is in the word of God. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 5 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his, very, his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, Make every effort to supplement your to your faith with supplement your faith with virtue, with virtue, with knowledge, and many other attributes. Now I realize in such a short time I can't address all of the arguments for and against sola scriptura. In fact, in the last couple of weeks, I've spent countless hours reading on this, and there are books and books and books and books written, and yet I fear in many ways I've not scratched the surface. But this doctrine of sola scriptura means that scripture has value for everyday life. It means that scripture speaks into the life of the church. It means that scripture informs. If scripture says it, I need to move, adjust my life to what scripture says is right and true and good and holy. And as Brian read earlier, we can see that what Scripture says about itself and talks about its origin. So if you have your Bibles, look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, as we take sort of an exposition of sola scriptura. And let's really consider what this means from Scripture. Now, here's something important that I, that I didn't really pay attention to or didn't recognize until I was reading, and that is the phrase sola scriptura does not mean nuda scriptura. Nothing but Scripture. What it means is Scripture alone is the authority, but that there are other things that are worthy instruments for knowledge. So we can use reason. We can use science. We can use experience. But I think Scripture needs to have the authority, needs to speak into all of those things rather than the other way around. So let's consider this passage. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So let's take this apart very briefly, phrase by phrase, and let's begin with this idea of, of all Scripture. What is Scripture? And I think it's every book, every letter, every word, every sentence, every paragraph from Genesis to Revelation. That is the scripture we're talking about. There are other books and other letters. There's ancient documents. But when we think about what scripture is, it is the 66 books that we have, that you have in your lap or on your phone. And part of the reason I believe that this is the word of God is because as scripture says, it was breathed out by God. Some translations say that it is inspired by God, and it's, it's more than that. You see, inspiration is, is something where someone might say something that motivates you to do something. That, in, you know, um, as I was reading 
you know, there might be an inspirational moment in a game that just makes you feel like, oh, that was such a cool thing, or an inspirational movie that moves you to tears. Well, that's not what God did. He didn't just do something and people did whatever they wanted in response to it. When Scripture says that it is breathed out by God, it is God breathing by His Spirit, God speaking into the lives of those who, those human authors who put pen to paper the thoughts of God so that God, being Spirit, could, would communicate in human language. Scripture's origin is God, and yet He is the one who moved in the lives of really men, to write down his words. But they, he did it. He left men a voice. He left humans a voice. The human authors get to speak in, in some way. Peter describes it this way in 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. In a sense, with Scripture, we have God moving human authors to write in a way that his message is conveyed with their voices. And because God is true, and this is an important point to keep in mind, because God is true, his word is true. Because God is true, what he speaks is true. It is sufficient. And so the next phrase that Paul writes in, in this passage, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. All Scripture is profitable or useful. But think about this. Our world is, is, is mired in this relativism that we're, we're facing culturally. My experience, your experience, my truth, your truth. Well, how does that all compare to God's truth? We need that firm standard. And God's word is that truthful guide. It is true, it is authoritative, it is clear, able to be understood, and it is sufficient. But God's word is profitable for teaching. And this is where instruction comes in. This is why we take an hour on Sunday morning to, to open the word of God together. That's why Carl is leading one class through 2 Samuel, why the other classes are using the, using the Bible generally as our primary textbook. God's word is able to be taught. It gives us a framework for how we should view the world. It may not be comprehensive in every detail of life or science or history. It's not designed to be a comprehensive end. It's not an encyclopedia. This is the word of God given to us to instruct us. It will provide knowledge and instruction. In other words, God's word, scripture, provides the foundation for knowledge. It teaches us how we should live, how we should view the world. Not only is it profitable for teaching, but it's profitable for reproof. Now, this Greek word has, has with it the connotation of, of indicating that someone has done something wrong and there is proof against them. It's sort of like that love letter you get from Montgomery County when you go a little too fast through that speed camera, right? There is now proof, and you've been reproved, so you pay 40 bucks. I don't speak from personal experience. Um, you pay 40 bucks to let them know, yes, I'm sorry, and I will do my best not to get caught again which is not the point. Anyways, but the whole thing is when we, when we allow 
our lives to be examined by the speed camera of God's word, he gives us that love letter that says, yes, you are wrong. And here's the evidence. When you speak this way, when you think this way, when you act this way, when you talk about someone this way, when you do this, it is wrong. Here's the evidence. And, and so it's designed to help us see that not, in, not only it is, is it in us by nature because of that original sin, which is why I think Scripture is so important, because we can go back to the original Adam, and all humanity gets our original sin from that original Adam. But all humanity is also redeemed, as Scripture says, by the second Adam, by Jesus Christ, if we would receive it by faith. But in addition to that original sin, we also have that intentional sin, those things that we willfully do against the ways of God. And the beauty of this reproof is that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. Consider these scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or 1 John 2, 1 to 2, my little children, I'm writing these two things to you so that you may not sin. And here's the encouragement. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. So not only does scripture help us understand that we stand guilty but that Jesus has taken our guilt on himself and atoned for it. He made a way for us, guilty as we are, to be made right with God by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. But what's more, Scripture not only shows us our guilt, but it also provides correction. This is putting us back on the correct course. This is that course realignment. It, it, it helps us. I believe Scripture provides a correction in thinking and in action. Uh, imagine this. Imagine if we were, were to try to get on a plane with Zach and Lee last week, Christmas morning, and we were going to fly from Dulles Airport to Jeddah um, Saudi Arabia. And imagine if when we took off, we were one degree off and we had to set it exactly right at the beginning and go. And if we were one degree off, we would end up some eight, 900 miles off course and would not get to where we wanted to go because we were out of alignment. And so I think that what, what God's word does is he cor it corrects us. Not only are we made right through Jesus Christ, but now when we do get out of bounds, when we do begin to act as saved, as redeemed people out of alignment, the word of God comes in and says, no, do it this way. When we get a little off course this way, it says, oh, no, no, I want you to think about it like this. It, it, if we listen and pay attention and yield, submit our lives to the word, it helps us live Rightly, which brings us to the next one. The word of God is profitable for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and this one, for training in righteousness for the, from the youngest to the oldest. Think about what God told the people of Israel back in Deuteronomy 6, what he told parents. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children 
and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Sometimes scripture can be challenging to read. You go through and read the prophets and you're like, what in the world are these guys talking about? We don't have all the context. But there are elements, there are things that are able even for the youngest learners to understand. Think about the Ten Commandments. How, and sometime this afternoon, maybe go back and read through Exodus chapter 20. And think through how complicated were those basic Ten Commandments. Some people think, oh man, no, that's not attainable. Well, it's a really a pretty low bar, right? Don't kill people. Well, we would hope that everybody would do that. Don't take stuff that's not yours. Yeah, we kind of learned that in kindergarten, didn't we? Don't lie. Those are some basic things that everybody could understand. But then he, he this passage concludes that the man or the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Some people want to say that Scripture is merely wisdom literature. It's merely there to enlighten us, to help us think differently, to help us ascend to a different level. It is not that. Yeah, we do. We, we gain all that, but it's not merely meant for mental ascent or intellectual exercises in good intention. Rather, it is intended to be practical and applicable for daily life. It's designed to help you be the person that God intended you to be as a student, as a parent, as a spouse, as an employee, as a boss, as a neighbor. Even as we already read from 2 Peter, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So let's conclude by applying sola scriptura. We need to recognize that God's word is sufficient for life and salvation as Barrett again encourages, Scripture is not merely helpful, but it is the source we turn to for all of life as a, as, as a Christian. And if we view Scripture this way, then we need, to make, we need to take some action. Not only do we need to recognize that God's Word is authoritative and sufficient, and I'm glad that we take time on Sunday mornings to carve out a good bit of time together as the people of God to study and hear the word of God. But I think it's important in our own lives that we take several acts, actions, and, and one of them is to read the word. We need to make time daily to read the word. We can't live out, we can't exhibit what we're not taking in, right? So how are you doing in reading the word? You know, I know a lot of us want to make uh, New Year's resolutions, and I haven't figured out if I'm going to do any. But I think a good thing would be for us to spend a bit more time in the Word. And if you need a path or need something, um, maybe you can use this little handout that I put in the, that Renetta put in the bulletin for us. This was, this uh, reading method was put together by a man named Robert Murray Machane. He was a, a pastor who died at a very young age. I think he was 35 when he died. But he pastored the church that he was leading for a short time. And he, one of the timeless things that he left to the church is a Bible reading plan that would allow us to read through the entire Old Testament once in a year and the New Testament twice. 
And he, he divided into a bunch of these little columns intending that two columns be used for personal devotions and two columns be used for family devotions. So if you need a tool, if you need a guide, you can use this thing. And it's, it's a way for us to, to, have the, and to have the whole counsel of God. Because in, in one day, for instance, this morning, I, I started reading this. I, I read Genesis 1, Matthew 1, Ezra 1, and Acts 1. Imagine all that part. You're getting the, the Old, Old Testament. You're getting some other Old Testament writings. You're getting the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and you're getting the beginning of the church. But if that seems like too much or you feel like, oh, family devotions, I don't know, just then read one. Start somewhere. Start somewhere. But in addition to reading the word, we need to meditate on it. Joshua 1.8 says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. You see, a lot of times we think of meditation as just sitting and thinking. I, I know yoga meditation is sitting and emptying. But if, we, if, if we're thinking about it as meditating on the word, we're thinking, okay, I'm, I'm just going to think. What does this mean? But in Hebrew, that word meditation actually has the connotation of verbally muttering what it is. So, for instance, if this week you were going to meditate or mutter on 2 Timothy 3.16, you might be going around, maybe you write it on a 3 by 5 card, put it in your pocket and pull it out. Well, let me mutter this a little bit today. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And imagine what would happen if by the end of the week you, or by the end of a day you were muttering something about that one verse over and over and over and over again, you would end up, which is our next point, memorizing it, right? I want to try to do a better job this year making, putting a, a suggested passage. If you want to memorize something, you'll notice in your bulletin there is a, a recommended verse, and it's the one we're studying. But as we mutter, as we meditate on the word, as we meditate on one passage, we can get that word in our minds and then seek to live that out in our lives. But the last thing I think we need to do is to filter everything through the word. When we're reading or listening to or watching other things, do so in light of the word. Let scripture sit in judgment or authority over all media. In Acts chapter 17, there was a group of people called the Bereans, and they were, called, they were praised, they were honored, because when Paul came and talked to them, they would go back and they would open their scriptures and, and they would try to verify what, what Paul said. They would hear this new thing and, and verify it by the scriptures that they had. I think that's the same thing that we need to do. We need to sit when we hear other people say, well, this is true and this is right and this is just, well, what does Scripture say about that? And let Scripture inform us how we should interpret all the things around us. Let me close with this encouragement from uh, Charles Spurgeon who pastored in England in the late, uh, mid to late 1800s as he challenged his congregation. He said this, he said, my friends... Stand over this volume, the, the word of God. Stand over this volume and admire its authority. This is no common book. It's not the sayings of the sages of Greece. Here are not the utterances of philosophers of past ages. 
If these words were written by man, we might reject them. But oh, let me think the solemn thought that this book is God's handwriting and these, are, these words are God's. Let me look at its date. It is dated from the hills of heaven. Let me look at its letters. They flash glory on my eye. Let me read the chapters. They are big with meaning and mysteries unknown. Let me turn over the prophecies. They are pregnant with unthought of wonders. Oh, book of books, and wast thou written by my God? Then I will bow before thee. Thou book of vast authority, thou art a proclamation from the emperor of heaven. Far be it from me to exercise my reason in contradicting thee. Reason, thy place is to stand and find out what this volume means, not to tell what this book ought to say. Come thou, my reason, my intellect, sit thou down and listen, for these words are the words of God. May that be our attitude when we come before the word. 